Friends, good morning. Let me also wish you happy Father's Day, gentlemen, uh, dads, and uh, grandfathers. Hope you uh, are blessed by this observation of your day. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. This is pretty much the dead center of the book of Revelation, these uh, three chapters, 12, 13, and 14. Many have commented that this is the very epicenter of the book, and that this section, these three chapters, explain everything else that's taking place. Uh, recall again that uh, these chapters, uh, the events that take place in these chapters are not reserved for some time in the future. Uh, a seven-year period that many call the tribulation. These events in these chapters, like much of the rest of the book, takes place now. Uh, it's this perspective that we've been teaching uh, over the last several months, and this is uh, the perspective that John wanted to give his readers, the behind-the-scenes look at why things are happening in this section called the Holy War. Uh, our portion today is uh, verses 13 through 17. We'll come to the conclusion of this chapter. Uh, this morning, it will draw on many of the things we've read previously, and we'll dip back into those verses as need, needed. But let's all read together uh, Revelation 12, 13 through 17 in your copy of the Word. This is the Word of God. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he, the dragon that is, stood on the sand of the sea. This concludes reading of God's word, his inerrant, his authoritative, his inspired word. May he bless what we've read and let's ask for his help now as we look into this uh, strange passage before us. We cry out for your help now, Lord God. Give us wisdom. Give us clear minds to uh, study and understand what your word says to us today. I pray that it would penetrate all the way to the heart, uh, Lord, that you would not leave us untouched by the truth in these verses. May it be the sovereign scalpel you describe in Hebrews uh, 4.12, sharper than any double-edged blade. Quicken my mind and heart, Lord, to preach clearly to your body. Strengthen my words and my throat. Uh, and may all we do honor your son Jesus, Father. We pray in his name. Amen. The longest war in history is probably not what you think. Uh, none of the worldwide conflicts in the recent past, say the past 50 to 75 years, would qualify as the longest war in history. World War I, World War II, uh, Korea, Vietnam, uh, recent wars in the Mideast, the War on Terror, none of those 
qualify as the longest war in history. If you're a history buff, perhaps you're thinking of the 30 years war, and admittedly 30 years is, a, is an awful long time for a war to last, but uh, worldatlas.com lists 50 of the longest wars in human history, and the 30 years war doesn't even make the list. They describe uh, 50 of these longest wars. Let me just mention the top three to you so you can get an idea of how long these conflicts uh, raged. Uh, the third longest war in human history was the Byzantine-Bulgarian War. Uh, when the first Bulgarian Empire formed in 681, it sparked 715 years of war with the Byzantine Empire, also known as the Eastern Roman Empire. The second longest war in history was the Anglo-French Wars. These wars were a series of clashes between England and France that began in 1066 when William the Duke of Normandy and 7,000 French soldiers invaded England. This skirmish resulted in a violent feud that lasted just under 750 years. The longest war in human history, number one on their list, uh, was known as the Reconquista, forgive my pronunciation, uh, better known as the Iberian Crusades. This was fought between North African Muslims and Christian knights from across Europe over possession of the Iberian Peninsula. That's what we know as Spain and Portugal. This, the longest war recorded in human history, lasted 781 years. But the followers of Christ have been fighting a war longer than any of these. God's word tells us about a conflict uh, that began before the world was created, a war between God and his holy angels and uh, Satan and his fallen angels. Uh, in verses 1 through 6 of our chapter, we saw, uh, we heard uh, described how Satan has been fighting God and his people for all of recorded history and attempting to prevent the birth of their Messiah, Jesus Christ failing to pre prevent his birth and failing to defeat Christ uh, during his earthly ministry. Our passage today reveals that Satan has turned his fury on the church. Now, verses 13 through 17 describe the fury of Satan directed at Christ's church and Christ's followers. This portion of the holy war alone has lasted over 2,000 years. How in the world can the church be expected to endure a war this long? Many of you have been fighting in this war a long time. I've heard your war stories. I've heard you describe your battle scars. How can the followers of Christ keep on fighting? Now, this is what we want to find out this morning from our passage. How do we keep fighting this holy war that rages? Uh, as I mentioned, failing to defeat Christ and, and knowing that his time on earth is short, the devil has turned his fury toward the church. 
And we want to find out how to withstand him in the day of battle, how to keep on fighting. And to find the answer to this question of how we keep fighting the war, there are three aspects of our passage that we need to see this morning. Uh, three aspects of this holy war that I want to draw your attention to. Uh, the first aspect of the holy war that we find in our passage is the persecution of Christ's church. Satan attempts to destroy Christ's church through hostility and deception. And there are three things uh, to observe uh, here. The first thing we find is simply the fact of persecution. Uh, we mentioned this fact uh, that Satan intends to destroy Christians back up in verses 1 through 6. And, and here we find another clear statement of Satan's intentions uh, for, church, for the church and for, for believers. Look at verse 13 with me. It says, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. And to begin with, I want to focus on the second half of verse 13. Uh, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. He is a reference to the dragon that's mentioned at the beginning of the verse. And when the dragon saw, he pursued the woman. John identifies the dragon for us uh, over in verse 9 that we looked at several weeks ago. Verse 9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he, in this phrase in verse 13, he pursued the woman, refers to the dragon, Satan, the devil. And it further says in this phrase, he pursued the woman. Uh, the woman was one of the main characters of the holy war that we saw introduced all the way back in verse 1 of chapter 12. Glance to the top of the chapter and, and read her description there. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon and under, and under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars, just pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Uh, John says that this woman is a sign, a symbol. That is, she, she stands for something. She represents something. It's not an actual woman that he's uh, describing in this vision. Several weeks ago, we identified this woman as Israel, God's covenant people. Uh, and this woman represents faithful Israel, true Israel, or spiritual Israel, uh, Israel that's attempting to give birth uh, to the Messiah. Uh, she represents believers from the Old Testament era, and as we'll see in our passage today, also represents believers from the New Testament era. And so the woman is faithful Israel, God's covenant people from both Old and New Testament eras. We could even refer to her as Christ's church. She stands for all those for whom Christ has died. This is uh, one large group. Listen to this scholar describe uh, this body, this woman, this, this covenant people. He says scripture emphasizes the fact that the church in both dispensations is one. It is one chosen people in Christ. It is one tent, one vineyard, one family. Abraham is the father of all believers, whether they are circumcised or not, 
one olive tree, one elect race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for God's own possession, one beautiful bride. Look at Satan's posture towards the woman, towards Christ's church. Back in that phrase in verse 13, uh, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Pursue means to chase after uh, with intense effort. Uh, the term can also mean persecute. So the dragon is not merely chasing Christ's church. The dragon is hunting Christ's church to harass, oppress, and destroy her. The dragon is hunting down Christ's church to cause physical and emotional suffering and pain and defeat. And one of the earliest examples of Satan's pursuit and persecution of the woman is by a Jewish man named Saul. And we know him as the Apostle Paul, but you hear in his uh, account of his life before he was converted that he was doing this very thing. Let me read from uh, 1 Timothy where he describes himself. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, same word that we see here, an insolent opponent. Luke describes the kind of persecution Paul was dishing out on the church in the book of Acts. Acts 9, 1 says, but, but Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that he, if, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Since Christ ascended and was seated at his Father's right hand, uh, Satan's clear intention has been to hound Christ's church to death uh, through people like Paul. Paul, before he met Christ uh, the Lord on the road to Damascus. I... Uh, I'm afraid I have to introduce some bad news to you on this Father's Day. Um, God's Word tells you and me here this morning that this kind of persecution is a reality that all of us face. Paul describes this in 2 Timothy. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Of course, you can ask, what if I don't desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Then you're probably not a believer and you don't care about such things. But all will be persecuted. Peter adds this, uh, a familiar verse, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. This is the fact of persecution, though we might not experience it to the level of our brothers and sisters in, in very hostile areas like India, uh, places in the Middle East, uh, still we, we stand for Christ and the world system that we live in is opposed to Christ and opposed to his reign and opposed to us. Jesus said it like this 
If you were of the world, the world would love you as its, as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is the fact of persecution that Satan has turned his attention toward the church, pursuing her, persecuting her, hunting down in an attempt to, de destro to destroy her. The second thing I want to point out here is the reason for this persecution. Uh, the first half of verse 13 exposes the reason for Satan's persecution of the church. Look how it starts. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, uh, this phrase takes us back to the previous paragraph. And, and so travel over with me to verse 7 and be reminded of, of what he's referring to. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Before Christ ascended to the Father's right hand, uh, seated and enthroned as the ruler of the universe. We saw that in, in chapter 5. Uh, Satan apparently was granted some access to heaven. Uh, in the Old Testament, we see him approaching, uh, approaching God to accuse the Old Testament saints. He did this in Job chapters 1 and 2. He did this with Joshua the high priest in Zechariah 3. But after Christ paid for our sin, made a complete payment on the cross, there was nothing Satan could accuse us of. Because Christ was enthroned at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us who know him. Satan had no grounds for an accusation, so there was no place for him in heaven. He was expelled, as, as uh, verse 7 and 8 describe. Uh, who shall bring any charge against God's elect, Romans 8 says. Because of Christ's payment for our sin on the cross, no one can. And so there was no longer any place for Satan to accuse the saints in heaven before God the Father and he and his fallen angels were defeated by Michael and expelled. Look at verse 9. This describes it as well. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And then again in verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. This explains the fury of Satan against Christ's church. Uh, no place for him in heaven to accuse the saints. And so he turns his fury, his wrath, it says here, against the church on earth. This is the reason for, for persecution. He's been expelled from heaven and directs his fury at us. One more thing I want to point out here, and that's the form of persecution. Uh, verse 15 suggests two forms that this persecution takes. Look at verse 15 with me, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Very uh, unusual language. And this is 
not as unusual when you consider that John is using the language of the Old Testament. And so uh, what John is describing here is not a literal flood, but he is describing hostility from our enemies. David used language similar to this throughout the Psalms. You might recall the many times David talks about a flood. David's not talking about a flood of water. He's talking about a flood of opposition from his enemies. And there are several places where we see this. Psalm 93, for instance, it says, The floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring Psalm 69 uh, mentions the same thing. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there's no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. And then I think the, the, one of the main ones is Psalm 124, where not only does he mention this flood one more time, but he explains to us that this flood is actually not water, but enemies. Uh, listen to... Uh, Psalm 124, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. Uh, when their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. The floodwaters we're reading about then here in verse 15 as opposition and hostility from the church's enemies, from the woman's enemies, from the covenant community's enemies. Hostility. Hostility like the one Saul displayed and, and like the hostility that David experienced for his, from his enemies. But it's not just hostility that he threatens the church with the other one, and, and perhaps the main one is deception from the world. The second form his persecution takes is often deception from the world. In this same verse, several Bible scholars point to the, the phrase, out of his mouth. The serpent poured water out like a river out of his mouth. And they conclude from these words that the flood could also be a flood of deceptive words. Uh, one uh, scholar says, note the, that this water like a river comes forth from the mouth of the serpent, which can be interpreted to mean a flood of deceptive words. This, of course, would be right in line with Satan's character known uh, to us, especially through Christ's words in the book of John. He's the father of lies. Uh, he does not know uh, the truth, everything he says, uh, is a lie. And, and so throughout Scripture, we hear the church warned of this very thing, of deception, of this form of persecution that, that Christ takes pains to warn his church, watch out for lies. For example, uh, in Acts, Paul tells the elders, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples away after them. He warns the Colossians in a very similar way. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So in addition to hostility, there's deception from Satan. 
how does it look? What does that look like? Well, one man tries to sum it up this way. The, the evil one tries to engulf the church in a stream of lies, delusions, religious isms, philosophical falsehoods, political utopias, quasi-scientific dogmas. I promise you he doesn't come trying to deceive you dressed like the masked singer. The word says he masquerades as an angel of light. And so the lies that we hear sound completely plausible. They probably contain a little element of truth. You might hear a pastor on TV say something and think, oh, that's pretty good, I like that. So his disguise, he disguises himself as ministers and false teachers who, who look fantastic. And they're not guys who stumble over their words. These are good communicators. They're smooth. And these are a lot of funny stories. And they have you smiling and really liking the guy and and then he says something that you're not quite used to. And wow, well, he seems like a good guy. Maybe, maybe he's right. He deceived Eve in Genesis 3. And has never stopped. The father of lies. Hostility deception are the forms his persecution takes. So this is the first aspect of our passage, this persecution of the church. And looking at this, you, we again ask the question, how do the followers of Christ keep on fighting this holy war? This war, this one part of the war since Christ ascended has raged for over 2,000 years. How do we keep fighting? Well, we go on and, and the rest of our passage informs us how we keep on fighting. Because the next thing we see is the protection of Christ's church. Now, God protects and nourishes Christ's church throughout her time of warfare. And I want to point out two things to you about the protection of his church. The first is deliverance from God. God delivers Christ's church throughout this period of war. Glance up to verse 14 uh, with me again. It says, But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. Very strange picture. Strange image. Again, it's not a literal woman. It's, it's God's covenant people, true Israel, uh, spiritual Israel, we could say Christ's church and, and is given two wings. What, what does that even mean? 
Well, again, we understand this by looking back to the language of the Old Testament. And in particular, John is using language of the Exodus here. He's, he's describing uh, the deliverance of Christ's church the way the Bible describes the deliverance uh, of Israel from Egypt. Uh, listen to how the Lord uh, describes the way he delivered Israel. Uh, it says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. This is the way he would deliver Israel from Babylonian captivity. It says uh, here, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. Just a minute now, does anybody remember any place in the Bible where, like in the movie Hobbit, these giant eagles came and, and Israelites climbed on their backs and they were flown to safety? We're not talking about literal eagles uh, in this uh, in this passage. It's a symbolic language to describe how God delivered Israel. And it's to say to us, just as he delivered Israel in, in those two occasions, so he will deliver his church in this time of warfare. That would have been a good place for a mumbled amen. His church not necessarily delivered from persecution, but delivered through persecution. Delivered so safely and completely, it's as though she had the wings of an eagle. And his deliverance is described further. Look down to verse 16, but this is where we talked about the flood before. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. What is that talking about? Again, unusual language, but it's drawn directly from the Exodus. In fact, it's drawn from our scripture reading today. Uh, we read about Israel's triumphant delivery in our scripture reading from from Pharaoh and the army of the Egyptians. And we read the Song of Moses, which contained these verses. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. Remember, the earth didn't really open its mouth and swallow them. They were drowned in the waters of the Red Sea that covered them. It's another figure of speech, a way to describe, it's as though the earth swallowed them alive, and the earth really does swallow some rebels alive in the book of Numbers. It's to say, just as the Lord delivered Israel from the hand of Pharaoh, so he will deliver his church from the hand of her enemies. He will swallow, the earth will swallow them alive, deliver them through this holy war they're involved in, and listen to the way the Lord says it through Isaiah, this great, great verse, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. <coughs> Beg your pardon. And the flame shall not consume you. What does God promise his church in the holy war, he promises deliverance through the battle. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm talking too loudly. 
He promises to, to, to clutch them through the war as he delivered Israel, as though an eagle picks us up and, and takes us to safety, as though the earth opens his mouth to swallow the flood of lies. In other words, the church cannot be destroyed in the holy war. There is deliverance from God in this holy war, deliverance through the holy war. But the second thing we read here is nourishment from God. I want you to see nourishment that God provides to Christ's church. Again, this is in verse 14. We're reading about uh, the woman uh, flying on the two wings of the great eagle. It says, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished, uh, provided for. Uh, this again is drawn from Exodus. Uh, uh, and here, John especially is referring to Israel's wilderness wanderings. And remember, this is where, where God provided bread from heaven, the manna to feed Israel and to nourish, and, and later on the quail. Uh, and just as God nourished Israel in her wilderness, so he will nourish Christ's church in the wilderness of this world. Not an actual wilderness, of course, for us, but the place where we experience harassment and persecution from the dragon. It's here in the wilderness of the world that Christ's church will be fed with the true bread that comes down from heaven. Jesus the bread of life. God will nourish us and sustain Christ's church in her persecution through the life-sustaining presence of his Son. There was a uh, fairly well-known missionary named John Patton, and he was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific, now called Vanuatu, but John Patton uh, went with his wife uh, to take the good news about Christ to the cannibals of this island. You can imagine he faced harrowing danger. Countless times his life was threatened by the, by the native tribes. Some would protect him, some rescued him. But there was a constant threat against his life. He was always living on edge. His biography reads uh, in several places like, a, like an Indiana Jones movie, literally speaking. And one of these times when the uh, Indians, the native tribes, were after him, he found refuge in a chieftain's home. And this is how his account, there, this is just one example of the many dangers uh, the danger, however, was so great that Noar, the tribal chief, uh, said, you cannot remain longer in my house. My son will guide you to the large chestnut tree in my plantation in the bush. Climb up into it and remain there till the moon rises. See, the natives would fight each other back and forth. Constant state of war among the various uh, tribes of natives on, uh, on, in the New Hebrides. Patton says, being entirely at the mercy of such doubtful and vacillating friends, I thought, I, I, though perplexed, felt it best to obey. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. 
The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages, yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among these chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? Have you a friend that will not fail you then? Have you a friend that will not fail you then? In this holy war, the war that rages around us, the war that we engage in on a daily basis against the wrath of our adversary, the devil. Such a friend stands ready to help in the person of Jesus Christ. I would ask you to begin with, if you've ever put your faith in Jesus the Son as, as the payment for your sin. On His cross, He shed His blood, laid down His life to pay for sinners, to die as their substitute. Have you ever put your trust and your reliance and all your hope in His sacrifice on the cross? Until you do, you have no such friend. And I would love to talk with you about how to do that. How to trust Christ as your Savior and Lord. Some of you have, but some of you don't know anything of what Patton's talking about. You can say that, yes, I've trusted Christ who knows how long ago, but I don't know anything about this. And perhaps even right now, you, as he describes, you feel alone. All. All alone in the midnight. In the bush. And I want to tell you, there's a relationship with the person of the Son of God that you can cultivate. That you can walk with the Savior with the king of the universe, as John Patton did. It's not an elusive secret for some mountaintop mystics. It involves a little discipline. Okay, there I lost half of you. 
but it's a discipline that rewards better than any stupid diet you've ever been on. A friend in the bush, in the midnight, when you are alone, all, all alone. This is what God gives Christ's church. Nourishment from the true bread from heaven. So this is the protection of God. Uh, and uh, note that this lasts throughout this whole time. Uh, he finishes verse 14 uh, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Uh, we've seen this phrase come up many times. Uh, I have uh, stated that I think this is a symbolic way to describe this whole era. Uh, this entire age we live in can be described as a time of tribulation, even great tribulation. Uh, Peter describes it as the last days in Acts chapter 2. It's also referred to as the gospel age. It's this whole period of time. And this uh, deliverance and this nourishment from God for Christ's church does not run out halfway through the holy war. It sweeps and carries us through the entire era uh, of the war, of this age, of this gospel age uh, that we live in. So this is, this is the protection of Christ's church. This is, this is how we keep fighting. Deliverance from God, nourishment from God through Jesus the Son but there's a third aspect of this war I want to point out to you, and that is the preservation, uh, the preservation of Christ's church. Uh, God preserves believers through his word and through the gospel. And here I want to point out two things uh, as well to you. Uh, first is just a restatement of the war on believers, uh, but intensified. Look with me at verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Take note, friend, the devil is furious. He is furious because he's been able to destroy Christ's church through deception. The true church has not been fooled by his flood of lies, nor has he been able to destroy Christ's church through the hostility of her enemies. The church still stands and exists this day because God has delivered us this far. Failing to destroy the church as a whole, Satan directs his fury toward individual believers. This is what John means in verse 17 where he says the rest of her offspring. Against individual Christians, the rest of her offspring, it says he went off to make war. Not a, not a single battle, but a sustained campaign, uh, a long conflict. This is the holy war we're talking about. Uh, not a single engagement on the field of battle, but, but a, a long sustained war. This describes 
a general state of hostility and hatred toward individual Christians. This is the reality that Peter describes to us in this familiar verse. <clears throat> Excuse me. And please don't go to sleep on me here in this verse. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Note, singular, someone. Satan revises his strategy somewhat and begins to pick off individual Christians. One scholar says this, the devil is unable to reach the victorious Christ and thus turns his wrath on the church. He is unable to swallow the church as a whole and thus fights Christians faithful to their Lord. And I just want to pause right here and stress this to you. There's no doubt Satan will continue in his attempts to destroy the church as a whole through deception. We, it's all around us. Well, what verse 17 indicates is that one of his main strategies is to pick us off one by one. This phrase tells us that he seems to go after the strays. So let me, let me say this. This is why fellowship in a local body of believers is essential to your faith. And by fellowship in a local body of believers, I mean faithful attendance in a local church. We understand some of us have to work on Sundays. Of course, there are vacations and illnesses. I am not referring to these. What I am saying, according to this verse, and this verse, 1 Peter 5.18, your regular attendance in the fellowship of the saints is vital to your spiritual survival. And if you think that's not true, then you're just running contrary to what the Word of God tells us. When you begin to take Sundays off and stay away from the body of Christ, not only are you disobeying Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You're not only doing that, you're also playing right into the devil's hand. He is delighted when you just can't quite seem to get out of bed on a Sunday morning. He is overjoyed when you don't feel like going. Okay? Can I tell you? I have Sundays when I don't feel like coming to church. <laughs> like a lion hunting his prey, he takes advantage of stragglers. Those who wander off from the herd. And once isolated from the pack, they're fairly easy to take down. So, what are you saying? Here's what I'm saying. Being here on the Lord's day matters. Looking other people in the eye matters. Having them look you in the eye matters. All 
all, all of us desperately need the body of Christ because it is Satan's design to take us down one by one. And so, let me apply this to fathers. Fathers, do any of you have the goal of seeing your children fail spiritually? Probably not. Would you love to see your child grow up in a, in a warm uh, relationship with Christ, kind of like the one John Patton described? And would you love that to be true of your kids? Yes, I would love for them to know Christ like that. Where do you think they're going to learn how to do that? Dad, you will ensure, not guarantee, but you will go far to ensure this takes place by simply bringing your children to church on the Lord's Day and do it on a regular basis. Show them that it is your lifeblood. You cannot live without the Word of God. You cannot live without hearing what His Word says. You cannot live without the encouragement of the faithful men around you to prod you on. This is... uh, His war on believers. And by believers, we mean individual Christians. That's the first thing we see about preservation. The second thing I want you to see is what believers then focus on during the holy war. There are two things. Uh, They keep their focus on two things here. And the first, no surprise, they keep their eyes glued to the Word of God. Look at Verse 17, again with me. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God. The word keep is very important. It means to observe, pay attention to, to fulfill. Keep uh, refers to obeying the commandments of God. Further, this participle is in the present tense. Uh, These believers keep on paying attention. They keep on fulfilling. They continually observe the commands of God's Word. It is their central focus of, of, of the Word and of Jesus Christ contained in that Word. They keep their mind riveted to Christ's commands. They're doing what what. Paul calls us to in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. These believers are continuing the practice of the early church in Acts 2, which says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. There's four things. The apostles' teaching the fellowship, that's this, uh, to the breaking of bread, that's the Lord's Supper, and the prayers, congregational prayers. But the first thing in the list is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And even more important than that is the word devoted. It's what you do with your hobby. They gave themselves completely to it. They kept at it. 
They never let up on it. They never let go. You will, friend, you will never withstand the onslaught of Satan in the holy war if the word of God in Christ as he's revealed in the word of God is not your central focus. Your devotion for Christ will be renewed through the word of God and you will be able to resist those things that Satan uses to parade in front of you to draw your affections away from Christ. You will understand the truth. Uh, It will grow and develop in you and you will not be fooled by lies that Satan parades in in front of you because you have a, a grasp of what's true. You'll you'll grow in your personal holiness uh, and your separation from sin through the Word of God. Satan will have fewer things to, to come and accuse you of and make you feel guilty about. These, in the holy war, keep their focus on the Word of God. That's the first thing. Uh, that they're focused on. The second is the gospel of Christ. Look at it again, verse 17. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold, excuse me, to the testimony of Jesus. The key word is hold to. It means they kept a firm grip on it. They'd taken hold of the gospel. It means they had it in their possession. It was theirs. Uh, It means they preserved it. They were faithful to proclaim the gospel to the world around them and to themselves. Again, we will not withstand the attacks of Satan in this holy war if the testimony of Jesus, the gospel, is not in front of our our eyes. By, By holding fast to the gospel message, we offer the world the only solution to the problem of sin. By holding fast to the gospel, we possess the only way in which someone could be made right with God. And by holding fast to the gospel, the truth of his payment for our sins on the cross and and the gift of free forgiveness, that's the only way we'll be freed from the weight of a guilty conscience. We must have the gospel front and center as, as they did. Under attack in this holy war. This is how God preserves his church through his word and through the gospel. This is their focus. So you want to last, you ask, how, how can I last this war? It's gone on for 2,000 years already. I don't know if I can make another day than than verse 17 calls you, put the word in front of you and put the gospel on your lips and in your mind and heart. That Christ has paid for your sins on the cross. You stand before him free from, before the Father, free from blemish and accusation. It's, I don't mean to be... It's just as simple as that. It's just as simple as that. It's the word in front of you. It's the word in front of you. How about today? Well, right now. Okay. You get a free one today. How about Saturday? 
we, we stand in this conflict by keeping our focus on the Word and Christ as He's revealed in the Word and on the good news about Christ's Gospel, His payment for sins that frees us and frees those around us. See, we're in a war that's lasted longer than any conflict in human history. Just in the New Testament era, over 2,000 years, but if you count the Old Testament, far longer. Ever since Christ expelled Satan from heaven and since he took the seat at his Father's right hand, Satan has, has turned his fury on the church and on Christ's followers. So how do we endure a war this long? How can the followers of Christ keep on fighting? We recognize, of course, the persecution of the church, a fact. Second, we, we keep on fighting, resting in the protection of God. His promises to deliver and the nourishment from the true bread from heaven, Jesus Christ. And thirdly, the preservation. He preserves us through His Word and through His Gospel. And so, Father, we submit ourselves to You this morning as people uh, engaged in conflict. And for many people here this morning, the conflict is really raging around them. And they need to know, they need to feel the eagle's wings carrying them through the conflict. And they need the presence of Jesus to sustain and nourish, us, nourish them as, as you did, Lord, with John Patton up in that chestnut tree. Savior, preserve them through your word and the truth of your gospel. Uh, carry each believer in this room through this conflict. You've promised to do it for time, times, and half a time through the whole era. We hold you to this promise, Father. Bring us safely through and fit us for the fight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.